2: Welcome to the Cut on Tuesdays on Thursday. I'm Stella Bugby, editor-in-chief of The Cut. Tumble out of bed and stumble to the kitchen, myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. This is how I get it done. The Just cut series about great. ambitious women and the way they live. How they deal with their inboxes, people's feelings, their grocery shopping, their morning routines. It's part advice column, part love letter, part voyeurism. This week I spoke with Yasmin Hassan, the global executive director for Equality Now, an international nonprofit that works to change laws in countries that legitimize sexual inequality and to create laws that promote equality where none exist. They've successfully pushed governments to protect women from sexual exploitation, harmful cultural practices like genital mutilation and sexual violence. Prior to heading Equality Now, Yasmin was a corporate lawyer and advised the United Nations, all while being a single mom. I started our conversation by asking
0: Asmin about the first time she realized women were not seen as equal to men. I was born here in Boston, but I grew up in Pakistan. My parents are both from Pakistan. My dad was in law school when I was born, and... From this time I was a little girl, the different treatment of men and women really rankled me, just in the family even, how boys were treated differently from girls, girls weren't given opportunities. Is there an example that you remember, like maybe in your family? All the time. I mean, um, well, I was a girl when I was uh, two and a half. My mother was pregnant with the second baby, right? And I used to talk to my grandmother and my grandmother would be like, this one better be a boy. And I was like, but why, why? I mean, that was a question I asked and everybody just assumed they have the answer, but there was a big preference for boys and it always bothered me. And then when I was 10 years old, we had uh, the first uh, a military dictator came in in Pakistan and he Islamized all our laws. And that's really the first time I saw as a young girl, all the women take to the streets because they were suddenly given half the legal status of men. And I was like, well, how is this possible? How is it that suddenly you wake up a person and at the end of the day, you're half a person? And I was like, I, from that time, I really wanted to work on women and girls. And I ended up coming here to the United States for college, which was a struggle because my grandmother, my father's mother told my father that if you send her abroad, there'll be no man will marry her. How are we going to get a man to take her, right? So the compromise was go to a women's college. And
2: were... The women in your family educated and worked, and
0: yes, they were same all educated. Men. So that's one thing with my, you know, my mother's a lawyer. My father's sisters all got educated, they had BAs, some of them, MAs, and all that. Nobody worked, and this is one of the things you see across the Middle East region. Right, women have outranked men at every level of education, from primary to postgraduate. But it has not led to, when people are saying education is the big driver of change, it is really just one drop in the ocean that you need to make work. And because none of that education has translated into political power or economic power or even freedom from your family. So there's a lot more work to be done. And you have a background as a lawyer, right? Yes, yes. I was trained actually as a corporate lawyer. Yeah, so I worked at a corporate law firm for the first eight years of my, you know, professional life.
2: So what made you take the leap from
0: corporate law to advocacy law? I realized that I've spent eight years of my life. I've been, it's not that I I didn't enjoy it. It was fine, but this is not what I wanted to do. And I had to do a big think of like, if I go down this path, I'm committing myself to something that doesn't give me joy. And that's when I had to think about what is it that gives me joy. Then um, suddenly they were doing talks of partnership. And I was like, this is not what I was put on earth to do, really. And at that same time, the Taliban fell in Afghanistan. And I got a call from the UN because I had worked on Islamic law and women's rights and I had written a lot about it and they said we heard you're an expert and would you come and work on the reconstruction of laws in Afghanistan. So I'd never thought of that. I'd never thought of going and working at the UN at all. But I was like, why not? You know Wow so what's <laughs> something that you advised them to make happen when you You know what uh, and I don't think we did that well enough because as you can see from from that time to now Afghanistan is um not a success, <laughs> to put it mildly. And I think one of the things we got wrong is everybody, all the internationals rushed into Afghanistan thinking, and, and people divided it up. So the Italians were doing law reform, the U.S. was doing military, the British was doing police and all that. But the local people were not that involved, right? And for women's rights, you know, women had been decimated and there had been no education. So people weren't even literate. But they were doing women's rights from U.N. agencies and not talking to the women on the ground who were the beneficiaries. And I don't think that ever works. So you have to talk to the women who are going to be affected because they are the drivers of change. If they're the beneficiaries of change, they have to also be the drivers of change. That's what makes us sustainable.
2: So a lot of what you do is focused on changing laws, which is maybe a more difficult or tedious aspect of advocacy, Um
0: What inspires you to keep going with that? I think it's really important. What inspires me, law change, legal change is long and it's hard. But the law really is what your government thinks of you right whatever is said society can be any which way if you go and seek help from your government and they say oh sorry there's no you know compensation for you or there's no recourse then you're kind of done for so I think that equality in the law and having the right laws for what you need as women is an essential first step to gender equality so that's why it's hard work but we are committed to doing it one step at a time how many hours a day are you working on this? Oh my God, you don't even need to know. Nobody needs to know. That. <laughs> I was like, you know, it's it keeps me up at night and we also have offices all over the world. So the email keeps bl- blinging. You know, today we just got this horrific case about, and it's US and Kenya. We had an American citizen and this is the f- first I heard about it. Like at six o'clock this morning, when I woke up, I had this email. There's a guy from the US who went to Kenya, open an orphanage, he and his wife then abused all the children that they had in that orphanage. And the wife even took them and got them birth control from the hospital, 10-year-old girls. And he's now living here in the U.S. So
2: in that particular case, are you going after that guy and trying to find him? Or are you trying to make it illegal to open an
0: orphanage? What, no. So, What is the... Well, remember, I just got that six o'clock in the morning. So the first <laughs> thing we already? are doing, <laughs> the first thing we are doing is we've looked at the U.S. long arm statute and there is a provision on sex tourism, right, which we helped get into the federal law, which means... Crimes that are committed overseas against children and against women can be prosecuted in the U.S. So the first thing we have to do is report to the State Department that this this has happened. The next thing we have to do, we have an office in Kenya, look at what are the offenses in Kenya and if things have already been filed there, and then bring these two things together. So prosecution of this person would be the first thing. Compensation to the victims would be the second thing. Third thing would be, are there any deficiencies in the law? that you know, allows people to do this kind of things without thinking that nobody's going to find them or catch them and then fix that. More days than, than you can imagine, I have these. Like last week was a case with this Argentinian girl who had been impregnated, 11-year-old, by her grandmother's boyfriend in his 60s. And the government would not let her have an abortion. And they tried to actually give her injections to grow the fetus so it could be delivered. So it's like... Yes, those, this is not the best morning news. I don't recommend this. I mean, but these are very, very hard things and they're happening every single day to girls around the world. And, you know, some of us have to work on this.
2: So after you get an onslaught of messages like this, then what do you do for the rest of the day?
0: Well, we have to work on all these issues for the rest of the day. first. like literally, <laughs> do,
2: do you? What is your day like? Do you get up then, and and you have a family, you have kids. I like do. What is your life like?
0: So I have two boys, and I'm a single mom. And uh, so I do my messages between like 5:30 and 7 is when I actually physically get out of bed. So I do messages. I wake up early, look at all my emails, answer that. Then between seven o'clock and 8 o'clock is my children's time. So I wake them up, get breakfast ready, listen to the news. I don't do U.S. news anymore because it's all about Trump and I couldn't care less. I mean, I've been heartbroken about it, but I listen to the BBC. That's because that gives more global news. Um, Get the kids out to school and then 8 o'clock or 8.15 onwards. We get a lot of cases and we have our senior management team all over the world and I mean, this is the great thing about the job. We have these issues and we can work around from around the world on the same issue. So are you mostly communicating over email with your 50 people around the world? Uh, No, we you know, this is email is a mixed blessing. (laughs) So when you're managing an organization that has people all over, I think that email is a is great because you can communicate quickly, but at the same time, misunderstandings on email are huge because you can't see the person's face. Sometimes people just write messages very quickly and it leads to hurt feelings. So my rule is, if you haven't sorted something out in two emails, pick up the phone, pick up Skype, call the other person. There's nothing like, you know, face to face, if you can see them, that's even better. But just talking to somebody is much better. So I I do, I'm not a big fan of, continuous email because i think a lot gets lost do you
2: ever find it hard to be the boss
0: oh always i never wanted to be the boss in like i am not a very well My children would disagree because they would (laughs) say I'm a very bossy person, but minus my children, most people don't think that I'm a very bossy person. And I've never been very competitive or I've never been the person who wants to put herself on top of anything. So it's very hard for me when people say this is my boss. And I was like, no, 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 we work together. Um, So, yes, I do not. I'm not comfortable being called the big boss. And I don't even think of myself as that. And I think... That has taken me a little bit of getting used to and understanding because I'm, I'm not very hierarchical and I expect that I, I'm also a very blunt person. Uh, so those things don't make for a great boss unless I have an understanding that this is how people are seeing me. Uh, so it's been a little bit of an adjustment, but I think that we've gotten there. <laughs> how do you figure out who to hire? Very much value diversity for us. Diversity is getting more men also in the organization <laughs> because I think from is our it hard to recruit men to work on this project? It is. It it it's, it is hard to get men interested because again, if you're a human rights organization but focused on women, I think generally women are interested. So we we very much try to be very open to men and bring them in. We have currently, I think one uh, we have two or three men in our Nairobi office who are great, and uh, in New York we have one. And almost, no, we have half a man, which is, which is not half a man, he's half time in the <laughs> London office. Uh, so yeah, I think there was a time when women's rights were a fight and women felt they had to. it had to be just women only. I think that we are, in this country at least, in the United States, I think we really now need to incorporate a lot more men. It's a struggle. I don't think men are that interested. And sometimes now with the Me Too movement, a lot of men are scared. What is it like to actively have to recruit men into your organization? It's the same as most people have to actively recruit women or minorities. I don't think it's much different. I actively recruited a director of finance and administration who was a man, and he worked with us for the past five years. And often I would have to call on him and make sure that his views were heard you know, even though he was like finance. But you have to be mindful of these things. Um, we had a man who was a junior staff and we were working with some celebrities and one of the celebrities made a comment on his appearance, right? Which was really hard for me because I was like, I would never have sat there if a male celebrity had made a comment on the experience of the appearance of a female colleague. Was it at a was it an appreciation
2: or in appreciation? Oh no,
0: I know. <laughs> What'd you see, do? those are the. So I actually first I was like kind of taken aback in the meeting itself, and then I called this guy to my office and I said I want to acknowledge that this happened and I was uncomfortable and I want to see if you were uncomfortable with that. And uh, so he said he was not uncomfortable with that, but I was still uncomfortable. So I went back to the. Agency that had brought us the celebrity, and I said, "I want to just raise this that as a women's rights organization, we are not okay with this." Goes both ways, um, so that's where I let it rest. But I know that that was an uncomfortable moment working in women's rights. Wow! You
2: know? <laughs> yeah. I <can>, I <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, he's like. That's great. I loved it. <laughs> no, I don't know if he said I'll he loved it because,
0: because the comment made was like, I like that eye candy in your office. I oh, so no. just like,
2: oh. <laughs> <laughs> Like, so you're walking the walk.
0: Yeah, yeah. you have to. You yeah. have to. It cannot be a double standard, you know. <laughs> it's like, it cannot be a double standard. Coming
2: up, Yasmin recommends never breastfeeding. And explains how the show Modern Family is changing the world.
1: Embracing nature is more than just going for a walk now and then, it's reconnecting with the elements, it's harnessing the power of natural ingredients, it's putting the earth first. For over 50 years, Nature Sunshine has been sharing the healing power of nature as they work towards a healthier planet. Their manufacturing facility is 100% powered by sunlight and they divert 95% of waste away from landfills. If you're looking for a sustainably made herbal supplement, you might wanna check out Nature Sunshine and their new power line. That's com and use code NSP for 25% off your first order.
2: Welcome back to The Cut on Tuesdays on Thursdays. I'm talking with Yasmin Hazan, the Global Executive Director for Equality Now, an international nonprofit that pushes governments to pass laws that protect women and girls. She's also a single mom who watches a lot of TV. I asked her about
0: how all this fits together. You work all day. What happens in the evening? What do you do? Well, I, I hang out with my kids and I really try to keep it. I have two boys and uh, they're 14 and 18 and they have different interests. A lot of the older one is more of an activist. So he is interested in not gender equality, but he's all race act. You know, my kids are biracial, their father, I'm from Pakistan, their father's from Ghana. And I find myself in this interesting situation of raising two African American boys, not being African or American, you know, really American, but I am an American. and so that's quite interesting. So I spend a lot of time with them and a lot of energy on their pursuits and what matters to them. And I travel a lot with them. And so we do a lot of fun things together. Hopefully, I hope they agree if they're listening to this. Uh, they will be It'll like- It would be a no.
2: miracle if they're
0: listening to <laughs> no, this. No, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I might make them listen to yeah. this. And like, uh... No, so, so I do spend time with kids. I try to spend time with friends. And I, interestingly enough, I tried to watch a lot of TV. What kind? Um, You know what, because, uh, well, all kinds, Uh, a lot of stuff that, because I do believe a while ago when we started, it was all about changing laws. I think as activism has changed, I think media has changed so much. And I'll give you an example of this. when I was growing up, we had one TV station in Pakistan, right? It used to go from 6 o'clock in the evening till like 10.30 or 11 o'clock. And it was state run. And we had one English show, which used to be like Chips or Straski and Hutch or Little House in the Prairie. Sometimes Cosby show was there, you know, all these kind of shows. Love Boat? No. Too too and much. Love Boat is too much. Too naughty. The love <laughs> was, like, we would never have sex in the city, I don't think. It's like, yeah these shows, which were about half an hour to one hour a day, really gave you a different window into into life. Now you go anywhere in the world. Everybody has satellite dishes and they're getting 500 channels, even in like little villages everywhere, right? A lot of people are listening to content from Hollywood and also from Bollywood. Those are the biggest producers and they are influencing how people are viewing relationship, life, and all that. And I was like, if we are not in there, I think legal change is seriously important, but social change is, legal change does play a part in social change, but media plays a huge part in social change. And I know that things like modern family have a huge impact. A while ago, I was in a, four, five years ago, I was in, I went to Pakistan and I was in a debate competition. And the issue that kids were debating was gay marriage. And I was like, Pakistan is a country where out of marriage, sex is illegal. So you're talking about, you know, gay marriage. And kids who were arguing couldn't figure out stuff to say against on on the con side. They couldn't figure it out. And then when I polled them afterwards, I was very interested. It was, they had all been watching Will and Grace and Modern Family, right? I think humor has a big role to play in how you get, people who are unsuspecting, who are watching something for entertainment, their views get changed in the world.
2: A little bit back to your life. Yes. So you mentioned that um, even though education goes up, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that changes will happen for women around the world. Um, In your own family, in your own life, what did you observe about the women who were highly educated but didn't work?
0: You know, I think at, at the time that I was growing up, the focus was on women are getting educated so they can raise smarter children. That was the thing. It's like you're getting, and a lot of times it's like you're being sent to graduate school so you'll meet the right guy to marry, and so there was no pressure on women actually to do something and succeed at it other than having a family. And in a lot of countries, you need your husband's consent to have a job. In Pakistan, what was also interesting is that the laws didn't really allow women to have agency. And my first job, I remember, I worked in Pakistan Television, and I was like 18. I was. And the sexual harassment was rampant, okay, as a woman and a young woman at work, and you could not say anything about it. Not only could you not say anything in the in the office, I couldn't tell my parents about it because the first thing would have happened, I would have been yanked from work and said, see, we told you it wasn't safe. You know, when we talk about sexual harassment in countries of the Middle East, you have to talk to people who are saying our families are going to restrain us from going to work in the first place. So it's like, what do you do first? So I think there's a whole gamut of issues starting from uh, do women have equality in the family? Are the laws supportive of women working? Number two, is the culture supportive of working women, which I don't think in this country it is even now. I mean, we don't even have maternity leave other than in a handful of states. And flexible work is kind of, you know, it's an aspiration. I was told after I had my first baby and I wanted to work part time, people were like, don't do that because you're just going to get paid for part time and you're going to be working all the time anyways, which was true. Right. So was but saying, did
2: you take their advice?
0: I I still took the I, I used to work Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, and I used to take Fridays off. And that day I wanted to, when I had the baby, do Gymboree and all that kind of stuff. But often I would leave the baby in Gymboree and be outside on conference calls, you know. So, um, yeah. I remember
2: after my first pregnancy thinking I had to go back to work because there was so much pressure not to go back to work. Yeah, There was so much pressure to stay at home and be a stay-at-home mom and, yeah. And and there were economic incentives not to go back to work in the short term where yeah. it was you know it was more expensive to let's say to pay for a nanny or the the yeah. rationale would be your whole salary will go toward paying for the nanny and yeah. then i remember feeling like i had to do that math because over the of the short term perhaps but over yeah. the long term yeah. no contributions to your 401k you know no, no
1: Career, maintaining of your career, yeah, yeah and yeah.
2: that. Um, but but that even in my educated world, yeah, there was not just a no. sort of social pressure to stay home. There was but we
0: see this right now. A kind of with financial the, yeah.
2: disincentivization to go right back to work.
0: You see that yet yeah, with young women right now it's like the baby happens and then all these considerations come into play. And unfortunately, a lot of people are short sighted. And the other thing is, and this wasn't me, they enjoyed the child. Yeah, I didn't enjoy it. Like I, you know, I didn't enjoy I when I I took eight months because I had a very bad um, childbirth. And I couldn't wait to go back to work. Because this is one thing I, I mean, I have always been good at what I did. And this is when I realized that I'm actually not so good at this. And this was a child rearing. So for me, it was easy to go back. My first child, I took eight months off. And my second one, I think he wasn't even two months when I was back to Afghanistan. I left him in New York. And uh, yeah, which was great. I, I you know, second didn't time. harm him. Second time around. And it doesn't, <laughs> second time around, everything is easier, right? As mothers, I think we get very... Um, anxious about first children because you don't know what you're doing and everybody gives you all sorts of advice from breastfeeding to what have you, which never worked for me, by the way, breastfeeding, I really don't recommend it to anybody, but uh, (laughs) this is a controversial thing to say To each his own. (laughs) To each our own, right? But I was like, there has to be diversity of opinions and everything. So the second child is much easier. And I think, I mean, that is one of the advice. Like I, I think child rearing was my big life lesson Mm -hmm. and to do that along with work because it didn't come that easily. What's the biggest challenge about being a single mom? Um... Well, it's you get to make a lot of decisions on your own, which would be nice to have somebody to talk things through. I think a lot of time when children are adolescents, they're going through a lot of stuff. And as adolescent boys, that might not be my experience. And I just have to look at my judgment. And it's not that you have always somebody else to bounce that off. So I think that's hard. But, you know, my kids are great. And I, you know, we figure it out. We I think we give each other leeway. They go through things. I mean, I was never raised as a minority anywhere. I mean, I am now a minority in the U.S. But when I grew up, I grew up as the majority population. I'm Punjabi, and we are the dominant ethnic group in Pakistan. And I think there is a confidence that comes with that. And there's a lot of things that you take for granted. So now I'm raising sons who are minority. They are mixed race, plus they're minority. And uh, it is... It is a very different experience. And a lot of stuff that I took for granted growing up, I have to make sure I boost up for them and confidence being one of the main things. How often do you guys talk about this stuff? We don't, I think they talk a lot among their friends. I noticed with my older son who suddenly around middle school started hanging out mainly with black kids. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, you know, we, we we never saw race as an issue or anything. But I think when your identity is being formed, those are the children he he gravitated towards. And then he became very political from that age on activism, on race and on religion. He told me he was the only Muslim in his school, uh, which was also very uncomfortable for him. So seeing, you know, growing up through their eyes is is a very different experience for me. It's a learning experience.
2: Thank you for this. I feel like I learned so much just sitting here
0: talking to you. Oh, no, it was wonderful to be here. And thank you for inviting me. Always happy to come.
1: That's
2: it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. This episode was produced by Chris Neary and was edited by Lynn Levy with mixing by Sam Baer. Our theme song is 9 to 5 by the one and only Dolly Parton. Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Up Media and The Cut. It's
1: a rich man's game. Celebrate Earth Month this April by harnessing the power of Mother Nature with Nature's Sunshine's new power line, from Power Greens with over 200 plant-based nutrients to support gut health and foundational nutrition to Power beets that can improve performance and blood flow. Not to mention Power Meal, which delivers plant-based calories from whole foods to help keep you both energized and feeling satisfied throughout the day. This Earth Month, you can enjoy 25% off your first order with code NSP. Just go to naturesunshine.com. That's naturesunshine.com and use code NSP for 25% off your first order.